Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, one. Welcome back to University, everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth, existence, and the unknown. I'm AJ Perrin, your host. With me, as always, is... Judson Martin. And Nate Pinto. We're going to be fighting through latency like this whole episode because we're doing it remotely. Um, That's right, we're back behind the laptop screen um, instead of our normal studio, but that's just a temporary for this one episode. Yeah, I mean, I think... The quality should be just as good, I hope. Last, well, so remember this, one of our most popular episodes ever was the Enceladus episode, and that was last summer when we were doing it remotely as well. So I guess it doesn't even matter. It's the quality of the content, really, not like the audio itself, you know? He's saying that his face is so blurry on my screen. Your face is in pitch black because you're sitting (laughs) in your dark room right now. So I just want the whole audience to know that. Anyway, today we're going to be starting uh, to talk about a bunch of different space rocks. Um, But so earlier this year, we talked about the OSIRIS-REx mission, um, the sample from it, which will help us get a better understanding of how our own planet formed and potentially the history of water that has given everything here life. Um, And the fact is the small objects joining us in our orbit around the sun aren't just debris. They're part of one large time capsule of the universe So we're going to try to understand them a little bit better this episode so we can get one step closer to understanding ourselves. How about that, guys? That sounds beautiful. I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm kind of scared to get to know myself, but yeah, let's do it. Let's start with with news here. Um, What do we got? So first, this was just broken to me two hours ago or like an hour ago, Um, and that's that Artemis II was supposed to be the 2024 flyby of the moon, um, which was gearing up to get people to land back on the moon again after a couple decades of us not being there. But guess what? It was delayed again um, all the way to 2025, meaning Artemis 3, when we're actually sending astronauts there, is not until 2026, uh, which means both were delayed an entire year. Artemis 1, if you uh, don't or aren't familiar, was launched in 2022 to test what's known as the Space Landing System rocket or space lander system rocket in the orion spacecraft and so that was just like a test flight but they were gearing up to actually send people back but now that's been delayed so tragic so do we know why Judd, what do you delayed? think i was just curious why it was yeah no fantastic question um so i was in the article i read they said that they just want more time to troubleshoot issues i guess and test the new tech because most of the stuff that they're sending up has never been in space before so they want to make sure that they're prioritizing the crew safety because, you know, none of it's ever been in flight with supporting people, you know? Yeah, I guess that's important. No, it is. But I mean, like, if it was between delaying it a year and sending me up personally with shoddy ventilation systems and bad temperature control, then I'd probably say, like, it's okay, we can wait, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they'll ever stoop that low to send you but maybe one day dang the same article that i was reading was talking about astrobotic technology which is like a commercial space 
um, space company. They launched a lander to the moon on Monday, but um, the coolant, not the coolant, the <sighs> propellant suffered a malfunction. There's a huge propellant leak that started like shortly after it was launched so that uh, they, quote, will n- have no chance of a soft moon landing. But if you ask me, I'm pretty sure they have a great chance of a hard moon landing if they wanted one. Nice. That's good. Somebody was supposed to laugh at that. I thought that was I thought that was actually hilarious. No, just just insert the laugh track right here. Wanna, yeah. I just didn't want to give you the satisfaction at all. Next in news, we've talked a little bit about entanglement before on the show, but um two researchers at Princeton have taken the next step. So molecules are far more complex than individual atoms or photons or ions, anything really that has been used to study entanglement in the past. And this complexity makes them better candidates for certain applications because they can hold like more information or do more complex simulations, right? There's more to manipulate there. They're also much harder to control, which is why previously until now, nobody had entangled two molecules. But the team at Princeton built what is known as a tweezer array, which is just like a huge array of lasers, like a grid of lasers that are focused um, together to almost act as little tweezers to uh, manipulate individual molecules and eventually entangle them. So... There's that. Yeah, that's really cool. Is there a benefit to entangling I wish molecules? It's basically that we know molecules are more complex, so you can do more complex things with them. So that's about all I can do without an additional degree. Yeah, I don't know. It says... Judd keeps flashing in and out of like white and black because like he turns tabs on his computer that are dark or light. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm kind of a ghost. I just go in and out here. I had some news as well like it's not science related but it's definitely space related uh star wars announced that they're making a new movie coming out in 2025 so that was pretty cool oh no way following the events of chapter or episode nine no it's mandalorian movie so no way actually i feel like that's better news in my opinion yeah pretty exciting i'm confused how they keep coming up with movies how like is there not like an ending like movie i haven't seen it so i guess maybe i'm unqualified to be on this podcast but i feel like wow there has to have been like some like (laughs) some ending like movie it hasn't happened yet there still just keeps going he's never seen star wars i'm still stuck on that well guys this was great hopping on the podcast um yeah it's time to log off buddy Have you, has, has he at least seen Interstellar? That's the question. Yeah. Inter- yeah, if he's I didn't seen Interstellar. Know, yeah. We yeah. can accept. That's <laughs> fine for now. So he's a junior host. He's a junior host uh, for the time being. That's a great thing to put on my resume. I can be, I can be a junior host. Judd, let's jump to Brain Gains. Uh, do you have one? Yeah, mine is about... Um, well, first, I want to ask you guys and see if you can guess this. Similar to how, well, the guests don't even okay. know about that, so I don't want to bring it up. But the last time I asked someone to guess, it didn't go very well. AJ knows maybe what I'm talking about. Oh, but, yeah. We didn't even, yeah. <laughs> you guys will never hear that ever. Um, how many times 
do you think the flag for the United States has changed? How many different flags do you think we've had? I only know of two. So I'm going to say, yeah. well, that doesn't make sense, though, because that every time we gain a new state, we were probably thinking about like adding more stars, right? Yeah, so that's part of it. I don't know. I, I, I've only ever seen two, but I would guess maybe there were, after the 13, 50 minus 13, there were 37 alterations. That's uh, close. Wait, really? Ooh, okay, well, close. It's sort of close. I mean, not necessarily. Like, the second number's right. I'll give you that, Nate. What else you got? Okay. So they had the one after the 13 colonies, and then we obviously have the one now. I feel like they wouldn't change it every time we got a new state. And there had to have been points where there's points in history where we got several states and then more states. So I feel like it's going to be like in the middle. So I'm going to go with like like 24. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 27. It's pretty he good. said my oh. second number's right. And you said <laughs> you could have gotten that, Nate. I was he so... gave you one of the digits and you changed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's okay. That's we okay. That's okay. Yeah. He was close enough. Anyways, that was, I just thought that was a little interesting fact that I learned. Because it was more nice. than I expected. Nate, you could have like sold I was man. along with AJ. Like I only had seen the, the two. So. Yeah, but I think it'd be kind of goof. I don't know why my first guess was like literally two because it would have been goofy if they just waited from 1776 to 1950, whatever, when Alaska was annexed. So, yeah, or Hawaii, whatever the last one was. Okay, I'm a little disappointed. I'm searching stuff up on Google right now, and one of the top searches is why are there 52 stars on the American flag? Dude, no way. I'm a little bit upset with <laughs> somebody needs to do their homework. Yikes. Okay, moving on. Nate, what news do you have for us? Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like my brain gains tend to not be super brain gainy, but more just like, oh, that's cool. So with that said, I don't know about uh AJ, you're in Minnesota and Judd, you're in um Nebraska. But here in Chicago area, we got a hefty amount of snow. And so that got me really curious about snow, right? And I was like, okay, well, like, how do you know? Because you know how sometimes you get that solid, like, packing snow that you can, like, chuck snowballs at people, but other times it's, like, right. really soft and fluffy and it's kind of disappointing, in my opinion. The snow is measured by the ratio of, like, volume to actual volume of water. So the ideal is, like, 10, let's say, inches high, um, and the ratio would be... So 10 inches high to one inch high of water so the basically the way that they get um packing snow versus fluffy snow is that ratio and so packing snow is going to be a lower ratio so like five inches of snow to one actual inch of water so if your troposphere is closer to 32 or like just barely freezing you're going to get more of that packing snow but if you're having like really low temperatures like say negatives that's why you'll often get fluffy snow and not really packing snow so little little out of the ballpark but yeah judd you'll know you literally were shoveling snow all day but it's like when the temperature yeah. is close to 32 there's no worse job than shoveling snow because it's, it's so heavy anyway i love it nate um my brain gain is going to blow the cover off this whole shebang all right I would like to ask you guys what the fastest man-made projectile ever was. Without looking it up, 
I'm going to let Nate go first because I'm pretty sure I already know what it is. Um, okay, I'm pretty sure we've definitely hit Mach 1. But that's like okay yeah let's bruh. get start we've we've gone a little <laughs> faster than that yeah wait you know okay i'm gonna go mach 10 is the fastest okay. wait are we talking yeah, like first... so wait wait are we talking like a man in a projectile like in a plane or are we talking like just anything <laughs> guys i'm sorry no I'm no 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 just something that was man-made that was shot by us and it went fast oh okay, okay. Okay. Don't don't worry about it, Nate. Because I'll tell you right now, whatever guess you could come up with, it's gonna be horribly I'm off. I'm gonna go okay? nine tenths it's, of it's... the speed of light. <laughs> okay, what are you talking That's... about? Almost no. no. <laughs> anyway, pause for a second. Let's talk about. Oh, Judd, what's your guess? Do you already know what this I'm is? Pretty positive. I already know what it is. So I'll let. You... But can I guess now and then? If you're certain about it, just hold off, and you can tell me if you were if you were right at All the right, end. I'm sweet. Okay, so there's this, there was in the 19th or the mid 20th century, um, the United States was really ramping up their nuclear testing, um, both above ground and underground. And a famous underground uh, nuclear test is what's known as Operation Plum Bob. So in August of 1957, a team of nuclear physicists conducted an underground weapons test with the bomb being placed 500 feet into the ground. Now, upon detonation, the four-inch-thick iron cover on top of this hole was shot into the air. Now, later looking back at the high-speed camera, which captured a frame every thousandth of a second of the explosion, right? One one-thousandth of a second, right, between frames, the researchers could calculate the actual speed of the cover upon detonation. Based on that calculation, it turned out to be five times the escape velocity for Earth. Escape velocity meaning what would be necessary to get this cap out of Earth's gravity. Whoa. Five times the escape velocity for that cap was 125,000 miles an hour. That's, That's crazy. I said this was the escape velocity, meaning it's likely that the cover that was shot off actually ended up in space. That also oh. means that this was not only the fastest man-made object ever, but it also means that Sputnik, the Russian satellite launched in October of the same year, was not the first man-made object to ever reach space. And, and in fact, it was this cover. And if you think about the fact that the nuclear detonation that happened in this hole was a thousand times brighter than the sun, right? It's not hard to believe that when that is condensed into this narrow hole that that force could eject just a four inch thick piece of iron however big it was two feet three feet in diameter whatever no i think it's cool i that i was correct i knew the bad it was the manhole cover no big deal <laughs> judd does know everything though so that's a little bit unfair but whatever all right i think it's time we move on to space rocks what do you guys say Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. But before we move on, uh, guys, we're going to take a quick break so we can figure out how the hell we're going to explain all this to you. And we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back from the break, everybody. Um, We're going to jump right into it and first explain to you 
There are many different kinds of space rocks. There are most commonly asteroids, meteors and meteorites, meteoroids, and then there's the comets, okay? None of these are the same, and all of them are often mistaken for one another. To start, asteroids are small rocky worlds that are leftover pieces of rubble, essentially, from the earliest beginnings of the solar system. Most commonly, uh, they are remnants of protoplanets or, or very early planets, which collided with each other rather than becoming planets as we know them, right? There's kind of a reason that we don't have like a bajillion planets orbiting the sun, and that's because they, in the earliest stages of the solar system, were fighting with each other. Asteroids don't have atmospheres um, at all, and their composition uh, made of the rocks, right, uh, can vary greatly. If you remember, we talked about the Psyche mission a while ago, uh, maybe like six episodes or so. Uh, They can be like Psyche, right? A very solid metal asteroid, or they can be just like rubble that's very loosely held together by its own gravity, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily one solid rock. Speaking of gravity, some of them have uh, their own and some don't. And that's because they can be as large as a city or larger, right? Um, We'll get into some of the biggest asteroids later, but they can also just be as small as a car. Now, there are a lot of asteroids within our solar system, and most of them are between Mars and Jupiter. There's possibly millions of them between Mars and Jupiter, um, but they're not close together like they are in Star Wars, right? I think that's a big misconception as people think of like the asteroid fields that they have to dodge through. It doesn't really exist at the scale that they depicted. Just something about the asteroid belt. So there's actually two parts to the asteroid belt. You have the inner and then the outer asteroid belt. (laughs) So the inner one is actually, according to us people on Earth, is more valuable in terms of it um, It contains metals like gold, iron, platinum, nickel. So if you wanted to like get rich quick, just take a quick trip to the inner inner asteroid belt and grab some of that. Um, but the outer the outer asteroid belt is mostly just rock. So there's kind of kind of two parts to that. Asteroids carry interesting information because they have been preserved in the vacuum of space since. Um, the beginning of the solar system, which was billions of years ago. So it's possible um, that they delivered water and other organic compounds to the inner planets like Earth that were part of, you know, what brought us life. And we talked about on some of the earliest episodes um, of the show about the Earth's formation. When Earth was in its like hot molten state, it was the asteroids and comets that delivered water to Earth which eventually over millions and billions of years would cool it down from its from its more molten state through this cycle of vaporization and precipitation on the planet's surface. So yeah, was so that, that kind of like ice was all like, so the asteroids had ice on them from further from the sun and they kind of like were like UPS trucks just bringing in the water to help cool down the earth? Was that kind of what that's anticipated to be like? Essentially, yeah. I mean, that's a decent way to put it. So I know that... So think about all the water, the world's oceans, all of that literally just came from asteroids, which is crazy. Yeah. Like this was a giant asteroids and meteor shower that happened over billions of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the other thing too, is like, imagine asteroids don't have that much water on them, right? Compared to comets, which we'll talk about later, asteroids generally contain very little water. They're dry. So imagine how much 
um, how many collisions it would have to take over a great period of time for this to uh, like build up into all the oceans and freshwater and stuff. It's a lot. Yeah. Anyway, I wrote down some other interesting info here, so I'll run through that. The reason the main asteroid belt exists is because of Jupiter's strong gravity, which restricts the debris from forming into its own planet. So because Jupiter is such a um, has such a great effect on the asteroids, the asteroids can't clump up and become their own planets or, or clump into anything greater. Every time they pass by Jupiter, or any other planets for that matter, they're always being affected um, by different gravitational pulls and Jupiter being the strongest one. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how if Jupiter wasn't there, then there might actually even be a, a ninth planet or or, or another um, yeah. dwarf planet. It's kind of weird to think about. Yeah, and if Jupiter wasn't there, we would have been um, hit by many more asteroids than uh, we actually were. Now, if we're going to talk about asteroid collisions it's pretty certain that we're going to talk about the one that was said to have ended the Cretaceous period 66 million years ago. Now, what I didn't know is that, like, I had taken it for granted. I was like, yes, an asteroid killed the dinosaurs, but I didn't know our proof for that until learning about this, which is that, yes, there's the giant impact crater um, in the Yucatan Peninsula, but there is also the fact that there are traces of iridium scattered throughout this uh, crater hole. And iridium is only, or is very, very sparse on Earth, but is very, very common on asteroids. Which I, 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 I guess if you think about it, like you don't need to see iridium to know that that giant hole was probably caused by something smacking us really hard. But still, you know, hey, if you needed a second piece, there you go. I mean, think about how big, how much energy... Uh... Because how big was the asteroid that did that? I'm curious to know. That is a great question, Judd. That's the next piece on the notes, actually, is that it was only six miles in diameter or 10 kilometers, which means that most depictions of the asteroid hitting the planet are extremely and significantly exaggerated. But that also means that this is a relatively small asteroid compared to some of the items in the main asteroid belt. And it also means that the critical, you know, the critical size for a global impact um, is could be 10 kilometers in diameter or less, right? Okay. It doesn't need to be necessarily that big compared to our own planet to wipe out life as we know it. I just discovered something. The, the name of the asteroid that did that, or that we believe to have killed the dinosaurs, is called the Chick- Chicxulub Impactor. I, I mean, I'm mispronouncing that. But if you look that up on Google, there's an asteroid that flies across your screen and like shakes your screen. Wait, what? No way. Uh, yeah. So now all the audience has to go on Google and look that up. Yeah. Except they don't know how you spelled that. That was like the craziest yeah, thing I've ever heard. Um, chicks. Yeah, it's a very strange name. Chick. Chicksalub is what I'm thinking. Anyway, um, let's see. Speaking again of asteroid collisions, so there's another famous one in Arizona, another crater called the Behringer Crater, um, which during the 19th and 20th century, um, I think, uh, is when that excavation took place. Uh, There was a team that was doing just that, excavating that site, looking for the asteroid or, you know, a remnant of the asteroid that collided with um, the surface there. The problem being 
that they were looking for something that didn't exist. And that's because when asteroids collide with our surface, the kinetic energy is so great that they practically vaporize completely. So when this hit the surface, it vaporized itself and all the hot molten whatever spewed itself around the basin of the crater and even further, like miles and miles away, um, this would have rained down on the surface of the earth. And it released this collision from the Behringer crater. This was a 50 meter asteroid and it released 600 times more energy than the nuclear bombs of the 1940s. Sheesh. I think it's cool that the ma- on impact, the majority of the asteroid itself actually doesn't lie within the crater. Like you said, it gets mol- it becomes molten from all that energy and spews itself kind of around the edges of the crater, basically. Yeah. All right, somebody wrote down Apollo asteroids. I'm ready to hear it. Yeah, so it turns out there are ten, more than 10,000 asteroids considered to be close to Earth that obviously um, scientists and meteorologists want to keep an eye on in case, you know, we kind of all die from an asteroid. It's actually not that bad because most burn up upon entering Earth at Earth atmosphere. So go yeah. Earth's atmosphere, I guess. And to think about the fact that asteroids can burn up as they enter the atmosphere, but we have the technology to protect entire spacecrafts as 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 they do re-entry right so that's pretty impressive um technology shout out material scientists exactly shout out material scientists everywhere let's go straight into meteors meteors meteorites and meteoroids there's a those are the three they're basically all the same thing but they're all different so they're not the same thing at all i don't know why i said that so <laughs> meteor meteors are just asteroids that have entered Earth's atmosphere and they haven't made it onto the ground yet. An asteroid is, is in space, floating around somewhere. A meteor has entered the Earth's atmosphere. A meteorite has hit the ground. And a meteoroid is something that burns up in the atmosphere. So meteor has entered the Earth's atmosphere. It hasn't become a meteoroid or meteorite yet, but it will, depending on how big it is and what it's made out of and whether or not it'll get burnt up in the atmosphere. Um, Essentially. So meteoroids are before they've actually hit the earth. So meteoroids, they fall towards earth. And as they fall, there's this concept of drag, which I'm sure um, you guys are familiar with. And that causes friction and starts to burn up the um, meteoroid. And so these things can go from 25,000 to 160,000 miles per hour, which is pretty freaking fast. Um, and as this happens, um, from all the drag, there's gas that gets released. Um, and so when we hear of things like meteor showers, essentially what you're seeing is a burning hot um, asteroid, essentially, um, with a trail of gas kind of going across the sky. So meteorites, if you, right, the ones that have actually landed on the ground, if you were ever to get your hands on one, I'm assuming they'd be pretty... Um, like expensive but also it would be the oldest thing that you could ever touch because as we said before this is a remnant from the beginning of the solar system that has been preserved in the vacuum of space ancient solar history yeah something that was formed at the creation of a planet or destruction of a planet something like that so it's it's pretty sweet if we have explained meteor as well enough that leaves us with 
leaves us with one more kind of space rock um, that we'll jump into, which is comets. Comets are essentially snowballs. Um, So they are made of what is called nuclei. Their centers centers are called nuclei, and they contain icy chunks of frozen gases mixed uh, with other rocks and dust. But for the most part, they're incredibly icy. Um, They come from what's known as the Kuiper Belt, um, which is an area past Neptune and the dwarf planet we mentioned earlier, Pluto. That's where Pluto lives, is the Kuiper Belt. The inner asteroid belt, right, is, to my knowledge, not saturated with comets, if at all. The Kuiper Belt is really the home to where all of... um, these comets live now often when they collide with each other they will get knocked out of their orbit and sent towards the sun because the sun is the greatest gravitational pull so once they get knocked out of that orbit it's common that that's where they're headed on their journey to the sun the icy gases that are on its surface heat up which spew out behind it creating two different tails One of the tails is made from dust, and the other is from gas. The nucleus, the other part besides the tails, as it's flying towards the sun, also heats up, um, and often this makes it glow, and that glow is what's known as a coma. Um, And so that's why comets are often depicted as like these glowing balls with this dusty tail coming off the back because that's essentially what they are. And since they're going into the sun, that means the solar wind, which we've talked about in what would have been our last episode, is or two episodes ago, is coming off of the sun and catching these particles, which is why the tails are all often facing away from the sun, is because they're being constantly pushed by high-energy particles in the form of plasma. Now, the tails of the comets are huge, and this is because they're leaving this tail behind them, essentially, Um, and these can be up to millions and millions of miles long, right? They're not just a couple times the size of the comets. They're basically stretching out across space itself. That's impressive. Yeah, so I think think it's interesting, the location of the the Kuiper Belt or the location of these comets. If you kind of think about maybe how the solar system was formed, you can kind of, well, you first think about the fact that we have rocky planets at the, at the center, closer to the sun, and then we have gas giants out further away. So think about where these molecules are based on their density. The rocks, which are very dense, are closer to the sun because they have a higher mass, so gravity's pulling on them harder, putting them closer together, whereas the gas giants are further away and like where the gas or less dense um, molecules are yeah i didn't think about that i have an interesting fact that i think and yeah a little a funny little fact that'll well it'll come up when we discuss dwarf planets in a little bit a funny little fact okay, okay. yeah good a funny little fact i like that <laughs> um, like bob ross right we there. said there could be know. millions of yeah yeah it was like soft and kind um <laughs> anyway we said there are millions of asteroids right well when it comes to comets this number is in the billions here is where I'm confused, though. NASA's only identified 3,900 comets. So, seems like kind of a stretch to add on billions more, you know? Yeah, yeah that's I a mean, good point. I mean, billions there's... Billions of comets is crazy. I mean, 
because we're talking about the Kuiper Belt, which is so far out, I mean, I know we have really strong telescopes, but I'm wondering if we aren't able to identify as many because they are so far out compared to asteroids where we have a massive asteroid belt that's relatively close. Well, yeah, you're you're right about that. Like Our telescopes are very powerful, however, they're not necessarily powerful enough to detect even the near-Earth objects. Um, it's very hard to see. No, you're, you're exactly right, Jed. Um, we should probably talk about how we track this stuff, right? Yeah. And the yeah. danger that they may pose to the planet. Now, before we start, there is one kind of collision that you should celebrate rather than fear, which is that we said that the comets leave behind trails, right? Well, you may know that at certain times of the year, um, the Earth will collide with the debris coming off of these comets. Um, And that's, as Nate said earlier, is what's known as a meteor shower when rocks from outer space um, burn up in our atmosphere and release colors. And I was thank, or I was a... lucky enough to experience a really really nice one which was the perseids meteor shower um late last year not late last year last fall and we can predict when these are going to happen because we if we know their orbit and we know when earth is going to pass through that orbit we know that when we're going to run into some of these chunks that have fallen off of the 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 comets yeah now let's take a trip back to 2013 when an asteroid heavier than the Eiffel Tower and 20 meters in diameter entered the atmosphere above Russia. So if you were seeing this, right, just in broad daylight, an asteroid entering the atmosphere, you'd probably want to look at it. The problem was 90 seconds after it exploded, that's when the shockwave hit everyone. And this, like, was extremely damaging. Like, it injured people, would... The glass, if they were looking near windows, would have gone into their eyes and uh, and all this stuff, which just goes to show that 20 meters even still can um, do some damage. The funny thing is, NASA that day didn't predict that asteroid, but predicted another one that flew 27,000 miles away from the Earth and passed us by. So why is it that some asteroids are easier to detect, and some will slip literally right under our noses. It really just depends where our telescopes are looking that day. Um, so NASA has a, a department called the called CNEOS, standing for the Center, uh, Center for Near-Earth Object Studies. But again, it depends where our telescopes are pointed that day. The only way that we're seeing these asteroids is through physically observing them, seeing them with a telescope. Yeah. And so we have to use telescopes to track the asteroids, like Judd said. And the problem is, the only way to catch an asteroid on the backdrop of all the stars in the night sky is just look for changes, which stars are moving. Because, spoiler alert, they're not supposed to move as fast um, as an asteroid does across um, the screen in front of us, right? When asteroids are kind of between the Earth and the Sun, we can't see them because they're dark and they're only 15% reflective on average because of the composition of the rock on the outside. So even if they're fully illuminated, they're still hard to see. There's only a certain window uh, around our planet in which asteroids become visible based on where their position is relative to us and the sun. Now, 
only 1,200 asteroids since 1988 out of the millions that we know of, um, bigger than a meter, only 1,200 bigger than a meter have ever collided with Earth. But guess how many of them were predicted? Five. Five out of the 1,200 that have collided with us since 1988, uh, that's 35 years, um, only five have ever been predicted. So that really goes to show that tracking these, which is the first step to avoiding a collision, right? Tracking and finding these is incredibly hard. And it becomes harder because when asteroids are traveling on their orbit around the sun, they're being affected by a bajillion other gravitational pulls. Not only the sun, but the other planets uh, around them, other big asteroids around them. And so once we identify an asteroid, it takes years of perfect observations, unobstructed and illuminated observations to understand the path that it's taking around the sun. And we can really only predict it accurately, its path, um, up to maybe, for the biggest and best asteroids, about 100 years. Um, So these observations are incredibly hard to make. And we are severely outnumbered by the number of asteroids. I don't even know how they're how NASA's determining which uh where should we be pointing our satellites to find the the riskiest quote unquote riskiest asteroids. Um they do have this near earth object <laughs> studies uh center that I was talking about early earlier has a ton of databases online that you can look at and one of them is called the Century database. Um and this these are the asteroids that have been observed to have a reasonably high probability of colliding with Earth sometime in the future. Um, some of these dates go out to like 2200 or just like very far away. Well, it's kind of nice though, is that we haven't in any of, let's say, besides this one um, case in Russia, which AJ was talking about, there haven't been any significant hits, if that makes sense. And now whether that means, hey, maybe we're kind of staying safe or it means well, the more time that passes, the more likely you are to get hit. I will uh, bring up something, Nate, that we've talked about a bunch in the past, you and I personally, which is if you flip a coin 10 times, in the first nine times the coin came up heads, what's the probability that the last one will be heads again? But if you're looking at it as a 50-50... You would still just look at the next one as a 50-50 shot. What's your thoughts on that? No, that's that's exactly right, is that the next one should be a 50-50 shot. So like what you said, like, you know, the more time that passes, the more likely we are to get hit. Well, I just think kind of take it year by year, right? So this year, we say we have a one in a million chance. And next year, we, after that, we will as well. So, you know, a uh, strike that would have global impact, right? Like the one that ended the Cretaceous period only happens one every, once every, um, I think it was like million or once every 100 million years, right? So within your lifetime, if you are live to be 100, it's probably only a one in a million chance that you will ever, uh, ever experience that in your lifetime. But the problem is for every asteroid of a 10 kilometer size, there's a thousand of them that are only one kilometer in size. And a one kilometer asteroid, spoiler alert, is the country leveling kind, like one that would take out France completely if it collided 
with France. So that brings us to a discussion of how would we stop an incoming asteroid if we saw one coming? There have been a couple different theorized ways to to deflect or destroy an asteroid. So some obvious like thoughts that you think maybe the government or people in charge of, of doing this have thought of would be, well, let's send a nuke up there and blow it up. And what that would be doing is just breaking it up into smaller pieces that would hopefully burn up in the atmosphere because sending a nuke up there just, yeah, like I said, just breaks it up. It doesn't actually destroy the asteroid. One of the methods that NASA is working on and a mission that's actually been um, launched and things like that is the DART mission. So the DART mission is essentially just a way to deflect an asteroid. They, um, NASA has tested this um, DART method um, there are these two asteroids out in space. One's called Dimorphos, and it's a small asteroid that orbits this bigger asteroid called Didymos. And basically their goal was to try this DART method on the smaller orbiting asteroid to see if they could change the orbit. Um, and that was kind of like could be our first real data to see how this method works. And they were able to successfully redirect the orbit, and that kind of took the first potential step for our, uh, for our space defense, which I thought was really cool that you essentially can just thrust something the right way. And I know there's some really cool videos that NASA put out of what that looks like. Um, but if you could just essentially change this orbit a little bit, so instead of hitting Earth, it maybe would orbit around or something like right. that. Let's mention dwarf planets now. We talked about Pluto. Uh, we mentioned poor Pluto a couple times this episode already. And now I will tell you why it's okay to call something a dwarf planet. And that's because they're similar to planets, yes, because they can shape themselves essentially based on their gravity. They are strong enough in gravity to morph into something that is uh, round or nearly round. However, they are not strong enough to clear their own path of other objects during their orbit. They have gravity, yes, but just not enough by NASA standards, I guess. While we're talking about dwarf planets, that fun little fact I wanted to bring up. Um, apparently, Pluto was named by an 11-year-old girl, kind of just based off of, I believe it's Roman mythology. Her name was Venetia Burney. Yeah, asteroid, the cool. asteroid Bennu was named by like a six or seven-year-old kid as well. <laughs> so these kids out here... Winning these naming competitions um, is a great PR move by NASA, but also just kind of cool. So Yeah, so I found just a few other interesting things. Um, so one of them involves meteorite hunting. So you can go out there and hunt um, on your own. A lot of these are found um, by people who are kind of prospecting for gold with metal detectors. And they're also magnetic. A lot of meteorites, a lot of meteors contain magnet magnetic material. A recent study from MIT tells a, tells meteorite hunters to stop using magnets because that's one way we confirm if it's a meteorite is to put a magnet up to it. But they're telling us to stop using magnets because it can erase the magnetic memory of the meteorite. Because if you bring a magnet up to something, it flips the magnetic poles on all of the little objects inside of the that magnetic material. And so it can erase the the history of that object, which is kind of provides insights into the origins of that meteorite. I think that brings us to the end of our episode. It's time for us to say thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can make sure to go 
uh, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We do love to hear back from you guys. I would like to announce, I'm happy to announce, that we now officially have a Patreon. So if you are looking to elevate your university experience and become even more involved in the show, now's your chance. We've got a bunch of benefits, uh, including if you like listening to the show, now you can watch it too and get the episodes early uh, before anyone. Plus, you can let your voice be heard when you vote on future episodes and submit Q&A questions that can be answered live on air. Any curiosity you have literally ever had could end up right in front of our noses. Um, Plus, if you really, really, really want to feel in on the action, we've got live streams as well while we record. And there's a bunch more. I can't even list them all. Merchandise discounts, Instagram subscriber only content, free merch drawings. It's all there on our elevated Patreon experience. So head over to the Patreon at the link in our bio on Instagram or in the episode description. The thing you're listening to right now, you can go check it out there to join us. Other than that, we've got our listener shout out this week. Anyway, this week's listener shout out goes to Giant John Giani. Um, and he says, I remember this one episode where Judd and AJ were talking about how we are building literal suns on Earth in the form of nuclear reactors. And to me, that was the coolest thing I ever heard. I listened to this on the bus on my way to and from school, and it makes me motivated for the challenges I'll face while studying. It motivates me to be better. And if that, Judd, doesn't motivate you to be better, then I don't know what does. Um, because, man, I'm ready to go shake the earth a little bit after that one. So thank you so much for listening and keep doing whatever it is we are motivating you to do. Yeah. Hearing stuff like that is the kind of the purpose of this whole podcast. We love to inspire people and, and hear the stories of your inspirations. All right, guys. Well, then we got to say thank you to Nate Pinto for joining us. Right. Thank you, Nate Pinto. It was great being on another day, another great episode. Thanks for having me on guys. Anytime. And thank you, Judd too. Like not as much as Nate though, but (laughs) thanks for being here. Whatever. So peace. Peace. Peace.